New Testament book of 1st John. The New Testament book of 1st John. We'll look at chapter 1. We'll look at verses 1 and following, and we will jump around a little bit. Doesn't mean you have to uh, be a speed demon here and go through all of the passages of Scripture. You can be quite selective, but we're going to refer to a few that kind of confirm what John is telling us in 1 John. This is one of my favorite Christmas passages. I want to read the two verses. And I want you to imagine how exciting it was for John to write what he said. I just wish I could read it with the same excitement that the Apostle Paul must have shared this information. That, Apostle John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now, it goes without saying that you know exactly who John is talking about, right? He's talking about Christ. He's talking about Jesus. And... um, How many times did you hear the word Emmanuel mentioned this morning? It was mentioned in practically every song that we sang. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. I love the way this was given by one pastor years ago. The claim that Christianity makes for Christmas is that at a particular time and place, God came to be with us himself. When Quirinius was governor of Syria in a town called Bethlehem, a child was born who beyond the power of anyone to account for was the high and lofty one, made low and helpless. The one who inhabits eternity comes to dwell in time. The one who none can look upon and live is delivered in a stable under the soft, indifferent gaze of cattle. I think one of the things that we miss out at Christmas time is we get so busy with everything that we don't have time to sit down and just think about the implications of Christmas. My, if we just think about the implications of Christmas. But let's begin with this passage of Scripture. In 1 John chapter 1, John says, "...that which was from the beginning." I don't know what John is saying here. I don't know if John is suggesting that the beginning is when the beginning of Jesus' ministry began, when he came on board and Jesus called him to be a disciple. I don't know. But I do know this, that every time I personally read the words, that which was from the beginning, I go back a little further than that. And John himself, when he wrote the gospel, goes back a little further than that. In John's Gospel, John chapter 1, how does he begin that book? He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John goes farther back than the beginning of Jesus' ministry there. He goes back to the beginning, the beginning, and he includes eternity 
and because uh, there's, no, there's no beginning as far as eternity is concerned. So he has to use beginning to reference time. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, and then he says to us in 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning. And I say, wow, he's probably thinking about back there when God speaks about all of this in the context of time. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And here's John saying we've handled him. We've not only seen him with our eyes, we've not only looked upon him, gazed upon him, stared we're fixated, but we have handled him. And this is the word of God. This is Christ, the living word. And he has been manifested to us. And now we have the opportunity to bear witness to that and declare it to the world. And so begins John. Now, John is describing not the deity of Christ at this point. John begins in John chapter 1, the gospel, verse 1, describing the deity of Christ, but he is not describing the deity of Christ here. He is describing the human nature of Christ. If you look at the verbs, you'll notice that he's talking about Jesus in the context of time. And I got to tell you, and it's extremely important for us to understand this, when the Bible in the Old Testament said that God was Emmanuel with us, the most real and perfect example of that is that he actually came from heaven and he lived among us. Can you imagine what it would have been like back in those days when you heard that Jesus was in your town? Now, most people didn't recognize Jesus but more than a man, a human being. And then, of course, it dawned on the disciples, and then it began to dawn on other people that Jesus was actually God in human form. God took on the form of man. But can you imagine what it was like when you, if you knew all of that and you realized that Jesus was in town and you had an opportunity to go and sit in the house with maybe one of the luncheons or one of the times that he was teaching and just sit there and realize, you know, I'm only three feet from God with us. Only three feet. Now, you and I know, you and I know that the Bible teaches the human nature of Jesus. You and I know that the virgin birth, even though the virgin birth was miraculous, and the Bible tells us that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, where the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived because of the Holy Spirit. You and I know that in Luke we're told the very same thing, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived. But you and I know that even though that was a miraculous supernatural conception, you and I know that Jesus' birth was very human. He was born a baby. He was born in time, in a manger, 
in the little town of Bethlehem, and he may have woke up, he may have awakened crying, obviously, and he may have uh, cooed like a baby coos, but just imagine, uh, here is Jesus, the Son of God, in a manger as a baby, helpless as can be. Now, he grew up, and I just want to remind you of a couple of these things, just to remind you that the human nature of Jesus is all through the Gospels. He had to grow up. You'll remember in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, at the end of that, that Jesus had to grow up, and he had to go to school, and he had to learn his alphabet. You couldn't have, Jesus didn't know the alphabet when he was in the manger. He couldn't have read the Torah, the Old Testament. You couldn't have handed him the Old Testament scriptures, and, and he, could have, he wouldn't have been able to read it to you. He had to grow. He had to develop as human beings develop. He had to learn his alphabet. He had to learn the law of God. He had to learn the Holy Scriptures. He knew what it was like to run out and play with other kids. He knew what it was like to, to, to fall and skin his knee. He knew what it was like to come home crying because he was injured. He grew up. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be physically weak when he was in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights as an illustration. He knew what it was like to be weary and sit at a well hoping that someone would draw water. He knew what it was like to weep when a friend died. He knew what it was like to be troubled in his heart. He knew what it was like as a human being to need rest and to sleep. All of those things reflect the human nature of Jesus. And he also, he also proves his human nature because he knew what it was like to die. But we were reading through the book of John, and the very last chapter of John is after the resurrection of Christ, and I only bring it to you because I'm trying to tie all of John's works together. And Jesus fixed breakfast for his disciples at the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21. You all remember he did that. And I don't know if he fixed his favorite fish. I don't know if he made his favorite bread. I don't know, but I'm just telling you, we have so many, and this is after the resurrection of Christ, and we have Jesus displaying his humanity. Now, by this time that John writes this letter, the disciples knew that Jesus was God. You'll remember that by the time of the crucifixion and a week after his resurrection, Thomas, who was doubting Thomas, he was in the upper room with the disciples and remember when he was there, Jesus appeared to them and Jesus said to Thomas, I want you to put your fingers in the places where I, my hands have been injured and my feet. And Thomas then declared that, Jesus, I know who you are. You are my Lord and my God. At that point, he knew. So Emmanuel meant then that you and I could walk down the road with Jesus. 
Emmanuel, God with us then, back in those days, meant that you could talk to Jesus face to face. You could join him for dinner. You could spend time with him relaxing out in the countryside. That's what it meant then. But what does it mean now? And I ask that question because John is writing after Christ's physical presence is no longer with us. Now, what I'm going to say next is extremely important, and you and I to understand this. John is writing 1 John chapter 1 after Jesus was resurrected, after Jesus ascended into heaven, and, 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 and the fact of the matter is that uh, Jesus' physical presence is no longer with us. I haven't seen him, have you? Now, I'm kind of bringing this down to our level for a very important reason. Because the question I ask myself then is, does that mean that we are right back where we started? You know what I mean when I say that. Are we right back where we started? But let me give you a couple of observations real quick before we finish this up. Jesus did not cease to be God-man when he ascended into heaven. When he was resurrected, he was resurrected bodily, glorified body, the same bodies that you and I will have at the resurrection. But he did not cease to be God-man when he ascended into heaven. He didn't ditch his body. He didn't discard his body. He didn't shed his body. And if that offends you, and it shouldn't, let me simply say this to you, and maybe you will understand. Jesus didn't cease to be the Son of God or the Son of Man. How about that? Still both. Still both. Now, I want to tell you something, and it's extremely important that you understand this. What I've just said to you is historic Christianity. It's not a new idea. It's not an idea that's been bounced around and brought up occasionally in the church for the last 2,000 years. No, it is not. The disciples understood this. Did they, they knew it. Did they understand it? Probably not. Do we understand it today? Probably not. God didn't ask us to be God with the same ability to think the way he thinks and to understand things. He just wants us to accept the truth. So the fact of the matter is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father today, right now, as the Son of Man and the Son of God together, God-Man forever. Forever. That's historic Christianity. I can't change that, nor do I want to change that. Nor am I a maverick. I've told you many, many times from this pulpit, you'll never hear me get up in this pulpit and give some newfounded thought about things. I'm not a maverick that way. I'm not a maverick that way. I can't improve upon what the scriptures teach and how the disciples understood the scriptures and how the church has understood it for the last 2,000 years. And let me just simply say this to you. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1, do you remember in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends into heaven? Do you remember in Acts chapter 1 that the angel says to all of those standing there, they're watching it, and Jesus is going back into heaven, and the Bible says that the angel 
says this to those who are standing there. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This same Jesus, this same resurrected Christ, this same God-man is coming back. I feel really refreshed in saying all that to you because, really, I'll be honest with you, when it comes to the gospel, that may be the most important thing a pastor can say from the pulpit because that's the center of Christianity. Now, so how is God with us different now? How is it different now? So the physical... Now, I will say this to you. Think about this for just a moment. It has to be better than it was you say, oh, no, it couldn't have been better than me going over and having lunch with Jesus himself personally. Well, yes, it has to be better now. Let me tell you why it has to be better now. Jesus, when he was here in person, could only be geographically in one location at a time. In his human nature, right? You couldn't go to one house and then go to another and say, oh, you're both here. No. So geographically, there was a restriction. The world found out that Jesus came, that he died for our sins, that he resurrected, that he rose again. The world found that out. But the thing that you and I need to keep in mind is that the world was so far away from being able to go to Jerusalem to personally sit down and see Jesus. His physical presence affected only a few in that regard. So let's look at the last two verses of 1 John, one of my favorite Christmas passages. That which was from the beginning, and I'll read it again from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? That which we have seen. Now, here we are, verse 3. Okay, are you ready? 3 and 4. And that's it. We'll confirm this with what we say for the rest of the message. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. John is saying we want you to have fellowship with us. And you and I automatically think, well, John is saying fellowship with all of the other apostles, with all of the other churches, with all of the other believers, that's what we're automatically looking at here. But notice he doesn't stay just there. He says, and truly, not just our fellowship. He says, truly, if you want to get down to the bottom of all of this, the fellowship that I'm talking about is primarily the fellowship that we have with what? Everybody together with who? The Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And I almost look at the last part of that verse and I say, well, John can't help what he says next, even though he says it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He just can't help it. After he says that to us, 
he is so overwhelmed with excitement and he's so overwhelmed that uh, with enthusiasm that he says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. How could anybody not be full of joy when they realize that God with us means that we have fellowship? Now, I want to remind you of something that John said back in the, uh, uh, the, the gospel that he wrote. So briefly go back to John chapter 14. Uh, this is one verse you probably should look at. John chapter 14 in the gospel. And um, we got some new pew Bibles to add to the pew Bibles we have out there. I'm actually using one of the new ones. The problem is that the page numbers aren't the same. So I can't just say, up, oh, turn to page 1,664. I can't do that. Because uh, your pew Bible isn't that. But you can turn to John chapter 14, which is close to that area right there. So in John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion. This is the famous passage of scripture where Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, everybody together. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, everybody. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. I'm letting you off the hook. Don't worry about it. Older I get, the more I have to let myself off the hook. All right? Because my human nature isn't perfect. You know, now I want you, to, I want you to jump down to verse 16. And I want, you to, I want you to hear what Jesus says. Jesus says, I will pray the Father. He's going away. He's told his disciples that. He said, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, capitalized helper. That's the Holy Spirit, right? That he may abide with you forever. And the Holy Spirit is a... Is, uh, is, uh, like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not just a force. He will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he what? Here's the Holy Spirit. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Now that's exciting news already. Because Jesus is saying, once I go, I'm not going to leave you orphans. Don't worry about it. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to dwell in you. For what purpose? To comfort you, to comfort us, to empower us, to transform us. I mean, it can't get any better than that, can it? The Holy Spirit indwelling in us? It can. It can get a little bit better than that. Let me show you how. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. 19. I want you to look at 19 now. We're going to finish this off, but I want you to look tonight. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, I don't know. If you're going to describe a relationship, can you describe a relationship any closer than that? I, I, can't, I can't see how a relationship can be described any closer. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then guess what? Judas jumps in and he says to him, Now, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to do that? What's his answer? This is the, this is the, 
this is the crux of the whole thing. Jesus answered and said to him, if you have a new KJV, go ahead and read it with me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. I, I, we have more KJVs in here, don't we? New KJVs. Here we go. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, plural, we will come to him and make our home in him. Now the spirit has already been promised to do that, to come and dwell. Now the father and the son will come as well. I, I can't wrap my head around that. Can you wrap your head around that? I know it's true because that's what the Bible teaches. And I know that that's got to mean God is with us. Maybe not in phys obviously not in physical presence, but God is with us. And let me say this to you now because I, I want to conclude this. And I want you to, there's no way in the world. What I did is I opened a couple of topical Bibles I have. And I, I said, I, I, want to, I, I want to share with the congregation all the ways that God with us matters to us now in this day and age in which we live. So I, I opened up MacArthur's Topical Bible and I read one, two, three, four, five, six. So I don't have time to share those. I opened up Elwell's Topical Analysis and I went through there and there are just couple of dozen or more ways that God is with us now in the presence here in the 20th century. How do I boil it down? I almost don't know how to boil it down, but let me say a couple of quick statements to you. The first statement I want to make is, do you remember that when Jesus left his thirst and he said to the disciples, I want you to go into all the world and share the gospel with every creature, and lo, I am with you always. Do you remember that? Lo, I'm with you always. I think most of us probably stop there and say, God with us must mean that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. What's well, true, he doesn't. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. But it's, it's a lot deeper than that. It's a lot deeper than that. I would say this to you, that our physical fellowship is obviously a spiritual fellowship with the Father, but that doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean it's not vital. That doesn't mean it's not intimate. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have transforming power. Let me just give you a couple of quick thoughts because I don't have time to, to get into it any great depth. But let me kind of boil it down a little bit with you. Everything that is Jesus's is ours. His legal stat co-heirs is one. His legal status, his rights, his honors, it's all ours. The Father is ours. The inheritance that he is receiving is ours. The throne is ours. The crowns are ours. His likeness is ours. And do you remember the passages of Scripture? And there's a whole string of them. Can't read them to you this morning, but you're familiar with them, where the Bible says to us that we died with Christ and we were raised with Christ. He lives, we live. I mean, the intimacy that he has established with us is so tight and so strong and so real. Our human minds are just not able to comprehend it all. I think one day when we get to the new heaven and the new earth and Jesus returns and he said, did you realize how closely I've been associated with you in everything and how closely you've been identified with me in everything? I think most of us will say, no, 
we're quite clueless about it. But Jesus gives, I mean, John, there are several good examples of this, but John gives a good example in his gospel, right? The vine and the branches. He says, you know, my, the father's the husbandman, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, and we are so intimately connected to Christ that we have the same sap that goes through the vine, goes through the branches. That's a good illustration, I think. The fellowship that he's talking about, and I like to think of it is, so I put it the head, the head of the gospel, the, the head of the epistle that John wrote, I say it's, it's a good illustration of God with us in the 20th century. We have fellowship with God. Now, I just want to simply say this to you, and I know, I know, you're going to be reading through the gospel, you're going to be reading through the epistle of John, right? It's coming up. I don't think we're into it yet. I, you know, I wrote this all down. I don't think, I don't think yet, is it? Uh, oh, yeah, we're, this week. First John 1, 2, 3, 4, there you go. Second John, this week you're going to read it, so I don't feel so bad. Write them down. You trace the word abide in the, in, in, in the epistle of John. Fellowship, the word abide would go along with it, right? You abide in me and I abide in you. You fellowship with me, I fellowship with you. You dwell with me, I dwell with you. You just trace the word abide. You'll see it over 20 times in this book. And I just wrote the first six applications down. Whenever you see the word abide, write some application down. The first application is, if you want to realize what Jesus is saying here about God being with us, and you want to see that word abide actually working itself out in this intimate relationship that we have with Christ. Number one, in chapter 2, verse 6, walk just as Jesus walked. Number two, chapter 2, verse 10, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Number three, chapter 2, verse 14, and these are just the chapter 2 ones. Now, chapter 2, verse 14, live by the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 17, do the will of God. Chapter 2, verse 24, don't let go of what you heard from the beginning. That's a big one. How many times do we get bored? How many times do we say, oh, I'm beyond all that stuff? How many times do we let somebody come up with a new novel idea and we say, oh, I never thought that's what the scriptures meant. Uh, it probably doesn't mean that probably something new. It's probably something that's just a fad. Don't let go of what you have learned from the beginning. And in chapter 2, verse 28, practice doing what is right. All right. Now, I listed them for you. Find them. Find them in your reading, and you'll, you'll do good. Now, I want to I close with this thought, because I want you to think about this for a minute. Christ came to save. The whole reason he grew up as a human being was not to just identify with us and all of our sorrow and, and all of our temptations, and, except he didn't sin in any respect ever. But he grew up so that he could step in our place as a human being and suffer the penalty for sin that you and I. And I want you to keep that thought in mind for a second because I don't think that we would see this phenomenon today if that weren't the truth. If it really weren't the truth that God has saved us through the work of Christ, not our own personal work. 
But there was an old pioneer traveling westward across the Great Plains until he came to an abrupt halt at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Now, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know exactly what I mean. We went to Jacob's Lake to stay overnight on the northern rim of the Grand Canyon, and then we took the straight little road to the Grand Canyon. It stops right at the edge. Glad I wasn't going very fast. (laughs) He gawked at the sight before him, a vast chasm one mile down, 18 miles across, and more than 100 miles long. We know that to be true today. He's just standing there. He just can't believe what he's seen. He's never seen anything like that in his life. And all he can say is, boy, something must have happened here. Something must have happened here. Now, you think about Christmas. It's celebrated around the world in practically every nation, even in oppressed nations. They celebrate Christmas. Pray for those who are oppressed in nations. You know, I, I, you know, I, I didn't believe the statistic that Christianity is bigger in China than any other religion. I don't know if you know that or not. Christianity is bigger in China than any other religion in China. It took a National Geographic to prove that to me, and I don't trust National Geographic and everything. But they had the stats. But here's the thing. When you think of Christmas and you go around the world and you're thinking and you see how Christmas is celebrated in nation after nation, and you see the emphasis that's placed on the nativity scene and the emphasis that's placed on on candles and light, Jesus is the light of the world. And even if you look at the worldly aspects of Christmas, the ones that we have made into symbols for spiritual things, when you look at all of that, you have to say, boy, something must have happened. Indeed, something did happen. God came to our world on that first Christmas. And he went through all the trouble to do that to save us from our sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did. And I pray that you'd help us to really be in the spirit of Christmas so that our joy may be full and that we will take full advantage of the opportunity you give to us to realize that you are with us. In Jesus, your most precious and holy name, we pray. Amen.